Welcome to the podcast edition of Dream Talk Radio. I'm your host, Anne Hill, and every week I explore topics related to dreams, sleep, health, culture, and consciousness. Dream Talk Radio airs every Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific Time on KOWS 107.3 FM in Occidental, California. And you can catch the live stream at www.kows.fm. To find out more about Dream Talk Radio, visit my website at anhill.org. That's A-N-N-E-H-I-L-L dot org. Meanwhile, I hope you enjoy this edition of Dream Talk Radio. Not quite sure what's going on here, but um, you know what? This is community radio. This kind of stuff happens because we can handle it. That's why there is... Uh, Every so often, a little technical something that goes on. But you know what? There's plenty of resources we've got here. I'm your host, Ann Hill, this Thursday and every Thursday except for next Thursday, December 31st, when I will be taking a little vacation and perhaps we will play this show over again. So folks who haven't ca- um, aren't able to catch it this morning will be able to listen next week. So on the phone with me, I do have Reverend Jeremy Taylor, author of the newly re-released book called The Wisdom of Your Dreams, and it was previously titled Where People Fly and Water Runs Uphill. It's an excellent guide to group dream work. He's also the author of Dream Work and The Living Labyrinth, two wonderful books about uh, different aspects of working on dreams, and uh, we'll have him here to talk about this another project that he's been doing but for now jeremy welcome to dream talk radio oh it's great to be here Anne. thank you oh well i'm so happy to have you it's been it's been almost two years on the show and i guess i was a little bit uh, hesitant to have you on right away because you know i was just sort of finding my uh, radio legs as they say or maybe ah. they don't say but anyway now it's great to have you here well it's great to be here thank you so tell us about the wisdom of your dreams. This is this is the re-release of a book that you published in '92. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, it has become an acknowledged classic in the field. Yes. And when Rupert Murdoch bought Warner Books, who were the original publisher, he axed all us mid-list authors simultaneously. We just all went out of print at once on the same day. And that sent ripples through the publishing world that were quite large because Warner was and still is the largest publisher of, you know, books between covers in English. Right. And the folks over at Penguin and their subsidiary uh, house, Tarcher, we're having a meeting, apparently, and mentioned that Where People Fly and Water Runs Uphill was one of the books that had gone out of print, having been successfully in print for 14 years. And most of the editors were amazed to discover that most of the other editors had read, other editors around the table had read the book, and they were all even more surprised to remember how much they thought of it at the time. So there was a general hubbub, and some secretary was sent out to check on the sales reports Mm -hmm. from Warner and came back later and 
announced that the book had been quietly making mid mid-list money for Warner for 14 years. And so the Penguin Tarcher people said, well, that's well within our profit range. Right. may not be what Rupert wants, but we're perfectly happy with it. And we think this is a book that ought to remain in print in the 21st century. So they republished it. They called me up and said, how'd you like to get back in print with that book? And I restrained my glee. <laughs> and oh, I don't they know. said, you know, it's been it's been steadily in print for mm-hmm. almost 15 years, and the resource guide is therefore totally out of date. Yes. And surely you have new things to say 15 years down the road than you were willing to say when you published this book. So why don't you rewrite it and add whatever it is you want to add now? And so I did. I had the very pleasurable experience of going back and rereading it carefully, which I hadn't done in more than a decade. Yeah. And was very surprised to hit passages where I had thought I had said more. Oh. And I'd get to the end of the paragraph and go, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, where are these other points? And I realized that it was a reflection of how much my clarity about those points had uh, developed over the time that it had been in print. So there's several places in the book where the arguments are not changed, but extended considerably. Yes. And then I wrote a new last chapter, uh, essentially about the mechanics what I perceive to be at least the mechanics of the evolution of collective human consciousness uh-huh. and how it only happens in individuals. It's not like there's some great stew pot of human consciousness off somewhere bubbling and eventually we all get to it. Uh-huh. It is what we do as individuals that uh, paves the way for the evolution of collective awareness And the last chapter is about seven structural patterns of dream memory that I think reflect not only the evolution of the individual dreamer's consciousness, but which point to directions of collective evolution as well. So are are you speaking of Ferenzi's quote that uh, dreams are the workshop of evolution? Absolutely, Uh yes. I think... uh, Shandor paves the way with that mm-hmm. realization, and this is in some sense an elaborate footnote, an elaborate development of that bumper sticker. Uh-huh. So how does that work? I, d- I know you can't give an entire explication of all seven points, but it would be interesting to just get a little thumbnail. Well, the- sure, sure. Uh, there are the fairly obvious ones, like the evolution of dream lucidity, for instance. Uh-huh. Uh, which is clearly one of the natural uh, reflections of the evolution of the dreamer's awareness, particularly spontaneous lucidity. The question of lucidity that's been cultivated by ritual exercise is somewhat different. I am actually more interested in spontaneous lucidity. And when a dreamer is spontaneously lucid, realizes in a dream, oh, I'm dreaming. This is a dream. Uh, My body's actually safe asleep in bed somewhere. I am inclined to believe at this point that 
it is almost always, my experience is that it's almost always connected to the withdrawal of projections in waking life. Uh-huh. That in waking life, the dreamer has had the realization, oh, oh, uh, this, is, this isn't a condition of my environment the way I thought it was. This is a, an unconscious projection of my own stuff. Right. And every time someone gains increased conscious clarity about their true situation in waking life, it is very likely that that will be reflected in the dream world by a symbolic recognition of the true circumstances in the dream world, namely, I'm dreaming. So, in other words, you could see lucidity, at least spontaneous lucidity, as a... as a reflection of the mastery or at least the increased awareness that you have during waking hours. That's right. That's right. Now, occasionally, I think that's also true, and it's certainly in the religious traditions like Buddhism that promote lucidity. It's one of the reasons why lucidity is promoted, is that it's a it's a two-way street, right? but all too often, in my experience, the cultivation of lucidity for its own sake, without the, the broad religious and philosophical background that Buddhist practice brings to it, yeah. tends to become a sort of self-aggrandizing sport. Mm-hmm. And the point about the evolution of consciousness gets lost. So the the point then for lucid for lucid dreaming is not just to be able to fly or summon up amazing objects in your dreams at will. It's more to cultivate the ability to get into that state from wherever you are at any given moment. Mm-hmm. Is that yes, what you're I would certainly say that. Uh-huh. So there are also six other yes. markers of dream. Actually, you have to say dream recall because that's really all we can talk about. Uh-huh. And it includes dreams of great frustration where the dreamer remembers learning something terribly important or having a tremendously important conversation or something like that and cannot recall the content when they wake up. Mm-hmm. Now, most people walk away from those dreams irritated and frustrated, and what I've discovered over the decades is that from my point of view, the most important thing about that pattern of dream recall is that it's a promise that new consciousness is in fact evolving in the dreamer's psyche. And the dreamer's waking mind has not yet evolved to the point of being able to put words around it, Hmm. but it has evolved to the point of at least knowing that it's there. Yes. It casts its shadow before it. And the main point of all of that, in my experience, is the dreamer saying, if If I, the dreamer, continue to do my work, if I continue to put one foot in front of another and do the best that I can do, I will get to the point where I can remember that what I know at this point to be the tremendously exciting and interesting and important things that I knew in the dream that I can't remember when I wake up. Right. You know, I had a a version, uh, maybe it's a version of that dream. Just the other night, I dreamt that I was uh, heading home from a a book tour or something, and I decided to take the last leg of the journey up the coast on bicycle. 
Uh-huh. So it was sort of a storm. It was kind of during these past uh, series of storms we had. And biking up what seems kind of like the peninsula, 280 heading into the city. And looking, and so it's all cloudy and gray to the east. And then suddenly the, um, the lower range of clouds sort of parts. And there's still the, the gray over top. But, but through that little window, I look to my, uh, to my uh, right and I see the skyline of San Francisco. Gorgeous. Just like such clarity in the distance. And beyond that the snow-capped peaks of the East Bay. And it is such a, you know, it's like this glittering little city at the base of this gorgeous mountain range, which geographically makes no sense, really, if you know the Bay Area. But it was amazing, and everybody was pulling off the road, and I, and I pulled off the road with my, uh, my bicycle, and I whipped out my little iPhone camera. This is the first time I ever dreamt of my iPhone, which kind of, um, I'm a little sad about that. <laughs> oh, well, it, it, uh, <laughs> anyway, it'll, I, it'll be there again. That's <laughs> almost guaranteed. <laughs> I was like, okay, well, that's a kind of an evolution. But uh, and I get it ready to, to uh, take a picture, but as soon as I do, then the clouds come back in and the, and the vision is gone. And so this is, is sort of becomes one of those dream tricks where mm-hmm. I'm just sort of waiting around with everybody else at the rest rest stop, waiting for those clouds to drift away again. And but of course, you know, they, it's they they do once more, but it's too quick for too quick of an instant to take a picture. Is that kind of a a version of that dream? It, it certainly would be if it were my dream. When I imagine for myself the narrative that you've just offered, that's clearly one of the things that's going on. And with the luxury of imagining, and let me say another thing, in the waking world, to ride a bicycle on 280 would be a blood sport. Yeah, well. <laughs> and to do it in the dream with such nonchalant ease, if it were my dream, would be an important part of the dream. Uh-huh. I don't necessarily focus on it, but... Bicycles in general, particularly bicycles that work in situations that would be very difficult to do in waking life, are about personal power and balance and strength. Since in the waking world, what's required to ride a bicycle is personal power, balance, and strength. Right. And a All certain amount intended. of chutzpah. Yes, that's right. Well, not only that, but in the dream, I, I'm dry, even though it's raining around yeah. me, so I don't get wet on the bike, which yep. is kind of cool. It also is, a, in, uh, is characterized, my imagined version anyway, is characterized by another one of the seven markers, which is the sudden recognition of beauty in the dream. Uh-huh. Actually, I think it's one of the more important ones. My experience has convinced me that when there is a sudden recognition of extraordinary beauty in the dream, whatever it is in the dream, whatever the the object or the scene or the situation that evokes that aesthetic response mm-hmm. is very likely, I'm tempted to say 100%, although that's always an invitation to falling on your face if you say always right. about dreams, right. but I'm tempted to say it is always a symbolic marker of reliable spiritual truth in the dreamer's waking life. 
Well, that's really interesting. That uh, I may go a little farther afield from the subject we started out with, just to to uh, make the comment about teaching uh, teaching what you know, uh, trying to train people as dream workers. And I had the experience uh, last spring of of working with the Jesuit seminary in Berkeley, and some of the folks there were wondering, well, how do I how do I take this into the field, how do I take these skills back with me? How, what, what ensures that I will sort of quote unquote get it right about dream work? And my response, and I'd love to run this by you and, and uh, you can tell me what you think about this, was to follow the beauty in dreams. Oh, so, yes. You know, go for, go for those spots of beauty because, I mean, I, I believe that too. They are just, uh, there's a spiritual essence in those. Mm-hmm. You know, Keats says in the Ode to a Grecian Urn, truth is beauty and beauty is truth, and it's mm -hmm. all we need to know. And obviously, if we take that as a waking life statement, it's just nonsense. There's yeah. all sorts of extremely dangerous and malign stuff which presents a beautiful exterior. But if we're talking about the dream world, I think it is archetypal truth. Uh, in the very way that you're talking about, that the experience of beauty in a dream is a marker for the discovery of reliable, non-physical truth. Hmm. So what, so, and, and it seems like for, for people who are just learning to work on their dreams, that's a great place to start. Sure. Look at the sure. places where things are going really well, where there's that, that moment of glistening beauty, whether it's a, a, a plant in the, you know, dripping with little raindrops or whatever yes. that is. But then where to go from there? If there's, okay, so there's beauty and truth in my dreams, so right. where's the coffee, you know? I mean... Well, trust the stormtroop Jesuits to ask that question. <laughs> I am, to a certain extent, a product of Jesuit education myself, so it tugs on my heartstrings. Yeah. The concern of that order for education is profound. Yes. And certainly, not only from their point of view, but from a lot of people's point of view, the way to go is to focus on the dream's comments about spiritual truth. Yes. That ultimately that's going to turn out to be one of the most important levels of meaning that any dream has to offer. As you know, I am also a great believer in understanding unconscious projection more clearly. Mm -hmm. uh, it seems to me that you can't really do good dream work unless there is some understanding of the unavoidability, the inevitability of our unconscious projections coloring not only the dreams themselves, but what we have to say about other people's dreams. That's right. The recognition that any thought I have about what somebody else's dream means, whether it's correct or not, it doesn't have an it doesn't have to do particularly with, with accuracy. It's just of the nature of dream work itself. It has to be a projection. Yes. And just because it's a projection doesn't mean it isn't true. 
And even more importantly, if it is true, if I have figured out something true about somebody else's dreams, it will draw from me inevitably because it is unconscious, because it's not subject to conscious choice and will, the corresponding projection about that understanding in my own life. Uh You know, if I recognize that somebody else's dream is about problems that they're working out with their mothers, say, for example, a classic example, then my own unfinished business with my own mother will be what allows me to see that level to begin with, but it will also cloud my vision of that level by making it seem like my hassles with my mother, which may be very different from the hassles the dreamer has with his or her mother. Uh Uh-huh. You are listening to Dream Talk Radio here on Cows. I'm speaking with Dr. or Reverend or both. Yes, at this point it's actually Reverend Doctor. Reverend Doctor. Oh, you know, right Reverend would be so cool, (laughs) really. I think you could go for that one next. Anyway, I'm speaking with Jeremy Taylor, dream worker, extraordinaire, author, and longtime presence in the really the worldwide dream work movement. Um, and, oh, I should mention also your website, jeremytaylor.com, where people can find out about your books, your schedule of travel, your um, uh, the, uh, the Marin Institute for Projective Dream Work. Right, the uh, training program training that we've put program. together for professional dream workers. Yes, and many other things. So if I understand you right, the whole idea, getting back to what you were just speaking about, about realizing something or or having a a true insight uh, uh, into somebody else's dream makes that resonate because it's also, we also recognize the pattern in ourselves, one would hope. One would hope, yes. Unfortunately, there are many styles of dream work that do not emphasize this. Yeah. And for that reason, I think, tend to lead folks astray. Yeah. It seems to me it's inevitably true. I think the the Hollywood folks have it right. If you spot it, you've got it. Yes, right. So then the question is, is I, I, what, I, what I'm sort of attaching your comment to is the sort of the gotcha school of dream work. Oh, yes. Oh, well, this dream obviously means that you haven't gotten over your mother issues. Nyeh, nyeh, nyeh. Yeah. <laughs> How is that helpful to anybody? Well, it can be helpful at a certain sort of intellectual level. Right. But it is ungenerous and ultimately not respectful to either the dreamer or the dream. Mm -hmm. As you know, I am absolutely convinced 40-plus years down the road as a professional dream worker that all dreams, even the most nasty and upsetting ones, come in the service of health and wholeness and speak a universal language. Right. And one of the things that means to me is that dream work itself ought also to come in the service of health and wholeness and ought also to have some familiarity with the universal symbolic and metaphoric language of dreams. And gotcha-style dream work misses that crucial point. Even if it comes formally in the in a, in a way that acknowledges uh, projection, 
Right. You can still say, well, you know, if it were my dream, it would mean I was a lying schmuck. Right. And sure, the form of the language says I'm admitting that it's a, that it's projection, but the tone of the comment is competitive and gotcha and uh, and the whole the whole the whole nine yards. Mm. You know, the competitive seems to me to stand out that way. I mean, there's certain models for conversation. One is one is a sort of a we're all in this together, which. Uh, which seems to be way more conducive to building trust in terms of dream work. And the other is a, almost sort of a, a doctor-patient thing, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. I am sitting above the fray and I'm passing judgment in some way. It's kind of a Freudian model, really. I mean, I think Freud did so yeah, much harm yeah, to our alas, imagine- I, I wish I could argue with you, but I can't. I think you're right. I think altogether too much dream work is done from that stance. Yeah. It was really amazing to me. I hadn't done much dream work with older people, and but I was at the senior home uh, last spring with a population of about between 75 and 95. And it was stunning to me how the people who said that they did have experience with dreams, it was completely Freudian and their their immediate, even though they were interested and curious and would offer dreams, their immediate affect on saying a dream was shame because yeah. they were sure it said something humiliating or embarrassing about mm-hmm. them, which I just ascribed straight to Freud and some sort of misguided 1950s pseudo-therapeutic something. Yeah, well... Uh, I, too, have done fairly extensive work with that population and have come to very much the same conclusion. Uh, it's, it's tough working with that crowd. Yeah. And my experience is it can be done. Uh-huh. Yes. That it is possible to awaken mutual interest and compassion in that group of folks. Uh-huh. And when one succeeds in doing that the health and wholeness that the dreams actually come to serve surges to the fore. Yes. And with such a sense of relief, almost palpable, like, oh, you mean this doesn't mean that there's something wrong with me? Exactly. Mm-hmm. So how do you take people, well-intentioned people, who are interested in working on a more professional level with dreams, and how do you teach this idea of tone, which really is such a subtle thing, and it has so much to do with, with the presence that we project? Yeah. You yeah. Know, and it, it, on some level, it has to do with how comfortable we are in our own skins, with our own dream process underway, you know, as humans, right? Absolutely. How do you, how do you teach these well, finer points? Well, in some sense... I think the only way to do it is to model it. It is, as you say, a subtle and nuanced process. And the more subtle and nuanced processes become, the harder they are to talk about and delineate in some sort of discursive prose. Uh So I think the, I don't want to say easiest, because it isn't really easy, but the most 
effective and possible way to do that is to do dream work with these folks. It's one of the reasons I believe in group dream work so deeply is to get everyone in the group engaged in working the dream and to consistently model the positive, compassionate attitude toward the dream experience itself and to constantly acknowledge I have nothing to talk about except my own imagined version of this dream. Right. I don't know what the original dream was like. I only have this narrative, and the narrative causes me to imagine my own version, which brings me right back to the point that I understand you to be making. How I imagine my own version of the dream is going to have everything to do with how compassionate I am toward my own unfinished growing edges that's right and the more shame i use to control myself and run my life the more shame is going to be the tone of the work that i do with other people's dreams yes and in in several fundamental ways that would be the most difficult thing to to impart to one's students because if you're in that model then you're in it you're just That's in right it until and you're it's not unconscious anymore. as yeah. my primary mentor carl jung says on several occasions the problem with the unconscious is it really is unconscious <laughs> well I, and this brings up an interesting point as well it's that I mean, you've been involved with not just your own Institute for Training Dream Workers, but also several others around the country, the Hayden Institute. Uh, I think you've been working in JFK various times. That's right, and yes. So uh, how, and, and I, last time I spoke with you at some um, some it, event, you were, you said that you were actually working on a set of criteria or something to for these uh training programs. Can you speak to that a little bit? How is that going? Sure, sure. When when I started out 40 plus years ago, it became very clear to me that we needed to create a general social acceptance of folks talking to each other about their dreams as mm-hmm. part of the common commerce of uh, friendship. And that one of the great problems we were facing at that point was this idea that dreams were so radioactive and dangerous and self-revealing that the only place to talk about them was in the sealed vessel of the one-to-one therapist or analyst's office. And so I started out 40 years ago in an effort to popularize and democratize dream work. I think there are fundamental issues of cultural change and free speech here. Yes. Uh, And I do believe that effort has and is continuing to bear fruit. I feel quite pleased about the results, the four-decade results of that effort. That's a long haul, Jerry. It is a long haul, and with any luck, there's at least another decade or two left. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And because of my emphasis early on on making this, um, returning it, actually, to its status as common conversation, Yeah. you know, us 
technological materialist folks are the only folks on the planet who stopped telling dreams to each other. Mm-hmm. Everybody else knows this is important, and telling it to other people is helpful and right. is uh, an invitation to greater intimacy and mutual support. And so I didn't want initially to put a a professional training program in place Uh and leave the impression that you couldn't really do this work unless you had a bunch of specialized training. Right. So for decades, I kept saying, nope, nope, I don't want to do any specialized training here. I just want you folks to go home and feel empowered to talk about your dreams with your family and your friends. Uh And more and more people felt that way and went home and started to do it and got so excited about it that they decided, well, wait a minute, I want to make a living doing this. And so they would go out into the world and try and convince people to hire them and pay them money to do it. Interestingly enough, many of them went to hospice organizations Uh and said, you guys who are in the holding the hands of the dying business all know how the dream life of people facing death heats up. And the impression I have is none of you have anything to say about that. It just creates sort of an awkward silence when people tell their dreams. Well, listen, I've got things to say about that, and Mm -hmm. I can train other people what these things might be. How about it? I think this would be a great augmentation of your program, blah, blah, blah. And they were sufficiently persuasive that the hospice administrator people would go, well, wow, that's a great idea. We never thought about that. Right. That's that's wonderful. What kind of training do you have? Uh, and at that point, the enthusiasts were forced to say things like, well, er, uh, I've done a lot of dream work. Yes. And at that point, the negotiations would collapse. Right. And so I started to get an increasing number of folks whom I had known for years and know, knew were doing really good dream work coming to me wailing and saying, Jeremy, we have to have some kind of professional training because it's the only thing, a little piece of paper saying I've had some training is the only thing standing between me and this very important work I want to do with the dying and the people who work with the dying and a number of other very interesting and at-risk and underserved populations. So at that point, I said to myself, well, I guess the movement has developed to the point where we actually do need to begin to make this distinction. Mm -hmm. So I formed the Marin Institute for Projective Dreamwork and started training folks. And at that point, I had to decide, well, what does basic training to be a good projective dream worker amount to? What do you actually need to have to have under your belt to say, I'm certifiable, I'm trained? Right. And it seemed to me that there were essentially though. six things, all yes. of which are outlined in some detail on my webpage, because they are the same six things. And it's one of the reasons I ended up teaching in so many of these other programs, is that apparently I worked out the basic foundation for professional dream work clearly enough Mm -hmm. that when these other programs sprang into existence, they either reinvented the wheel that I'd already invented and then discovered moments later that we were all saying exactly the same thing, or they wandered around and looked at the list of things that I had put out on the web and went, oh, this is right. Right. You know, this is going to save me a year of planning. This is here and this is here and this is here. 
And essentially, in, in my program and in most of these other programs, you demonstrate that you have these six elements under your belt and you get a certificate. Yes. We are talking with Jeremy Taylor here on Dream Talk Radio on KOWS. And uh, Jeremy, you know, I think one of the things that people may not realize about you, but it, that is really fundamental to understanding your position and your strategies in terms of all these decades of dream work is that you are at the core a community organizer. Oh, yes. You know, you are a social change junkie. <laughs> That's right. I would prefer the term agent. But... Agent. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, don't be sorry. But don't no, be sorry. I, mean, I, I, just... I just say that in terms of, I mean, I have never, I have rarely seen such an unquenchable drive to go somewhere. I mean, it's really, it's, I would, you, you have a purpose-driven life. I'm sorry <laughs> to throw out another terribly uh, laden, but you know, I, I say that with all respect because you are just, you have been at this for, for decades and you're still at it, you know? And so I think the people who see you as an author or a dream worker kind of missed the point. You're actually here as an agent of evolution in, in a certain sense. Yes, yes. Thank you, Anne. Yes. That's, that really is at the core of what I'm doing. And uh, as you know, but your listeners may not, I come to this dream work out of a funny kind of radical political backdoor. Right. The first piece of carefully orchestrated, organized group dream work that I ever did was in the context of a community organizing effort focused on overcoming racism. Right. And that was 40 years ago. Yeah. And it was very clear to me at that point, and the clarity has only increased over the decades, that the fundamental source of racism is not conscious. It is unconscious. Yeah. And therefore, the unconscious sources need to be addressed. If one addresses only the conscious manifestations, it's like playing whack-a-mole. Right. You get rid of it in one place and it pops up in another. Right. Oh, I can't say that phrase uh, towards this group of people. I have to consciously edit myself in some way. Yep. Yeah. That's right. So it seemed to me that addressing those dreams, mostly they were nightmares, which had racial feeling and racial sentiment at their core was the only way I could figure out to begin to address these deep unconscious sources of these extraordinarily injurious patterns of feeling and behavior. Yeah. And I was stunned at how successful it was. Uh-huh. The success of that strategy really was beyond my wildest dreams. And I have some pretty wild dreams. <laughs> and so it was the success of that initial effort down in Emeryville, as a matter of uh -huh. fact. This all happened right on the shores of the east, the east side of San Francisco Bay. Right. The success of that effort confirmed me in this direction, and I've been moving in it with my best ability ever since. Well, and still honestly, uh, working to uh, end racism. Yes, and all the other isms, sexism yes, and classism right. and prettyism and uh, 
my religion is better than yoursism. Yeah, yeah. All of those. So, so here's a question for you: If there is some way that dreams are with you, the seven points you you've outlined in uh, the wisdom of your dreams, your, the new iteration of your classic book on group dream work. Uh-huh. If the idea, or if if evolution is happening through each one of us in terms of uh, be- becoming aware of our own projections and becoming uh, just increasing awareness a- in all sorts of ways. What what is evolution? What is it that people talk about when they talk about evolution? I mean, this term actually kind of drives me crazy a little uh. bit because it's sort of like, what are we all going to become? You know, Presbyterians and be <laughs> nice to each other. The Presbyterians would be very glad to well, hear that you I pulled them out of the air as the model. So I figure I can diss my own, you know, religion of <laughs> right, birth. Right, right. Well, it reminds me of the fact that Thomas Jefferson believed that the entire population of the United States were going to be Unitarians in two generations. So oh. <laughs> you're in good company. No, they don't have good enough music. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, the, the problem... Uh, You're asking a very large question here, and it's certainly one that I've devoted a lot of energy to. So let me me try and respond here. It's such a big question, I'm not sure I can, but let me try. The main problem with evolution is that it suggests things appearing which were not there before. Uh And from a historical perspective, that is indeed what seems to happen. Uh, new ideas emerge, new ways of feeling emerge, and then they begin to become the norm. Mm -hmm. And then another set of new ideas and feelings emerge. And it's this emerging quality which makes it so hard to talk about. Now, this is going to sound strange, but you ask the question, and I'm going to give you my best my best shot at an answer. Forty plus years of professional dream work, and another decade of personal dream work on top of that, before I actually worked up nerve enough to start charging money for it, yeah. has convinced me that at the deepest level of the psyche the level that Carl Jung calls the collective unconscious and the level that traditional societies have called the land of the dead or the other world or the isles of the blessed or what have you. There's plenty of terminology, but it seems to me that all of that terminology refers essentially to the same reality, that at that level of reality... The beginning and the middle and the end all happen at once. That the experience of time that we have when we are awake is not the whole story of what time is. Mm -hmm. Yes, when we are awake, there's the past frozen in unchangeable cement and the present whipping by so fast you can't even put your finger on it and the great amorphous cloud of the future. That is certainly the way it looks when we're awake. When we are asleep, however, the timeless quality of the psyche and the universe is more immediately accessible. Mm -hmm. And it's one of the reasons why 
precognitive dreams happen with such regularity in all cultures and all periods of history. Right. Folks dream the future before it happens in jaw-dropping detail. Yes. And in terms of evolution, it suggests that there are, let us call them patterns of energy and self-awareness. That's the most... Uh, universal kind of language I'm, I have at this point. There are patterns of energy and self-awareness that are eternal and timeless. Uh-huh. And as human consciousness evolves to perceive them more clearly as we grow, as our awarenesses deepen, then the larger nature of these patterns becomes more and more speech-ripe, more and more Uh image-ripe. These days I am particularly interested in how things appear to become image-ripe before they become Uh speech-ripe. That the visual image is closer to the core of evolution than words are. And as an aside, although I care about it a great deal, one of the consequences of that in my life is that I'm now trying to turn my understandings of dreams and how to work with dreams and their relationship to world religion and mythology and sacred narrative into a series of comic books. Right. And the first one is already available. It's called What Was That All About? And your listeners can look at the first 15 pages for free at blurb.com. Blurb.com, great. And I have another the, another volume in that series almost finished. I'm, I'm hoping to get it up on the Blurb site before the first of the year. Wow, I may not make it, but I'm getting close. And I have at least three more uh, volumes in that series increasingly clear in my mind. That's great. And the one that I read was very a wonderful sort of explication in in comic form of narrative of exactly what it what it is, how to think about and and talk about dreams. Yes. Yes, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to reach a wider audience. Yeah. I'm trying to reach a younger audience. Yeah. And one of the nice things about the comic book form from my point of view is that it is truly international yes in the same way that the basic structure and dynamics of the dream are truly international and so i think the likelihood of reaching wider audiences in other languages through a comic book is much greater even than reading wider reaching wider audiences through uh translations of my all all prose all type books yes so it, so if I am understanding you correctly, at least in part, what you're saying then about evolution is that it's really remembering what we already know exactly. in some sense. It's kind of the aha uh, experience writ large in some way. Yes, way. yes. And I am reminded that one of my great heroes, Woody Guthrie, had carved on his tombstone, I want to be remembered as the man who reminded people of what they already knew. Oh, wonderful. It's, I think it is the motto of all sensible community organizers. Uh-huh. We need to remind people of what they already know. Uh-huh. 
So then the whole, I- the whole idea that evolution means that we become quote-unquote better in some way or more adapted or whatever is really bunk. Yeah, yeah, I I think that's a fair way to put it. We become more whole. The one, the thing that I really appreciated about Al Gore's movie and Inconvenient Truths was he kept saying, "We have all the answers. Mm-hmm. We know everything that we need to know to fix this." Yep. And that's kind of what I'm hearing in what you're saying about dreams uh, helping us evolve in some way. Absolutely, and as you mentioned, Shando Ferenzi earlier, I think Ferenzi is absolutely right when he says dreams are the workshop of evolution. Right. So those, um, the folks that take it in a literal sense, either through some ap- apocalyptic 2012 vision or some crazy, you know, psychedelic delusion of 2012, are, are really kind of, uh, their only crime is mistaken literalism, as maybe you would say. Yes, indeed. You could say that several more times <laughs> and it wouldn't be enough. Mistaken literalism is the greatest stumbling block that we have in approaching this realm. Which is the the idea that, that some since it's I've because I've had a dream of the apocalypse, that means that an apocalypse is literally going to happen That's around right. me. That's right. Rather than I'm I'm witnessing an a shake-up of my whole way of looking at things. Yep, and with any luck, the whole way of the world looking at the same thing. Yeah, yes. Well, let's see. Jeremy Taylor, I have a couple more questions for you, but we are rounding up to the top of the hour. So, okay. Um, any, uh, I, I guess my, my the final thing that I really did want to ask you is that I know you, you travel all over the world and you talk to folks in all different stations of life and all, and I really, I always ask this of people who have that kind of a life. What are you seeing? What to you is appearing in dreams now that is new or different or somehow lit up in neon in your uh, awareness? Oh, what a great question. Once again, it's a question I try to address in the new, fairly lengthy last chapter to uh, Wisdom of Your Dreams. Another one of the markers that seems to me to be very important for, on the one hand, the evolution of the individual consciousness of the dreamer who has the dream, and on the other hand, clearing the threshold for collective human awareness are dreams in which there are large archetypal figures, figures that are clearly above and beyond the scale of the individual dreamer's life, Uh and where interaction with those figures causes them to change themselves. Uh, one of the examples that I use in the book is a uh, dream of a, a friend and colleague and a dream work client of mine who dreams that he's trapped in a tropical forest by a gigantic snake the size of an interstate truck. Wow. And the snake blocks his path. He cannot leave the forest. And in the course of the dream... 
my friend realizes, I'm toast, I'm gone, I'm a dead man. Interesting example of how death in the dream world is always deeply associated with profound psycho-spiritual growth and change on the part of the dreamer. Right. And at this point, in the middle of the dream, he gets it. I'm not getting out of here alive. Uh-huh. And he accepts that fact. And one of the consequences in the dream of his accepting the fact is he realizes there is no reason not to indulge in his favorite comfort food, which is not particularly good for him, but which he loves. And in his life, it happens to be oatmeal. Huh. Not necessarily in my life, That's but in his life, oatmeal is the, uh, <laughs> the the forbidden fruit. All right, then. And so he makes himself a bowl of oatmeal, saying, at least I'll go out, you know, eating what I like to eat. Uh-huh. And the snake sort of approaches him with uh, the head the size of a VW bug and seems interested in the oatmeal. So the dreamer sets the half-eaten bowl down on the jungle floor and and backs away. And the snake leans over the bowl and finishes the oatmeal. Wow. Big forked tongue comes out, finishes off the oatmeal. And as the snake finishes the oatmeal, the head of the snake, which was all snake to begin with, metamorphoses right before the dreamer's eyes. You know, the dreamer doesn't look away and then look back and see that the head has changed. He sees the change happening in front of him. And the head changes into the head of an old, balding black man with a little fringe of white hair and a little white beard. Uh Still got the snake body. The head is still the size of a Volkswagen, but instead of being a snake head, it's a human head now. And he and the old black, snake man have a conversation and in the dream the conversation is electrically real and clear and understandable and when he wakes up he can't remember anything about it just this sense of overwhelming excitement at having had the conversation and then he wakes up wow what a great dream i think it's a marvelous dream and it demonstrates as far as I'm concerned, it convinces me that as my friend shows up for his largest personal issues in his life, mm-hmm. which have to do with his vivid awareness that archetypal masculine energies run amok, are responsible for 99% of what's wrong with the world. Mm. And he's a man, and it's very hard for him to deal with that. Right. And the extent to which he shows up for that problem in his own personal life, in his own relationship with his own relatives, particularly mm-hmm. his good old boy male relatives, right. he offers up his life as a venue for the archetypes themselves to reveal their true form more clearly. Oh, right. And that the evolution of the gigantic snake in the dream represents at one level the evolution of his own self-acceptance as a man, personally, and at another level it represents the possibility of a collective change in our relationship to archetypal, planet-raping, 
masculine energies. Right. And that it is the undeniable archetypal size of the image and the fact that it changes in the dream that is one of the primary markers for this being one of those electric moments where the evolution of individual awareness and consciousness is a venue for the possibility of the evolution of collective awareness at the same time. Right. So if one person can dream that and watch that actual transformation in his dream, that makes it more, uh, that, that is then sort of sunk in some way like a weight into the whole collective unconsciousness right. that we all tap into every night. And yep. so that perhaps somebody else on the other side of the planet who gets into some kind of scrape is going to somehow actually find that maybe there's another option or maybe there's another slightly different way of looking at it or maybe so they'll see notice that something's changed that they hadn't noticed before. Exactly. Aha. Exactly. Oh. And you can call that a faith statement, if you will. Uh, and... In my life, it is a consequence of paying really close attention to dreams, my own yeah. and other people's, for more than four decades. Right. And trying to remember and keep track of everything I know. Right. And not ignoring the difficult parts. Right. The parts that I don't know what to do with, but having the whole of my experience available and trying to make sense out of it. Well, and I make sense out of my imagined version of that dream because that's all I've got. Yes. All I've got is my imagined version that's of right. this incredible dream. But I think that my imagined version is probably close enough to the original experience that, well, certainly based on the dreamer's own ahas, I can say that that was a useful comment to the dreamer. Right. The dreamer right. had a whole bunch of ahas about his own life. And this sort of uh, swallowing hard realization that it might indeed echo far beyond his own life. Yeah. yeah. And, of course, one of the things that happens with that moment of realization is that there is this tremendous extension of understanding of how we must be responsible for ourselves. Right. Not only must we be responsible for our individual and personal selves, but we have to take increasing responsibility for the situation of the entire planet. Global warming at this point being the most dramatic immediate right. example. Right. This upset about global warming at a symbolic level, I think all has to do with the birth pangs of the realization that human consciousness is a primary driver of the state of the world. Geez, just the birth pangs of that idea, huh? Holy mackerel. That's the longest damn labor I've ever seen. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Years ago, I, I got into a lot of trouble by writing an essay about uh, nuclear technology. At that point, it was 40 years since the bombing of Hiroshima. Uh-huh. And the point I made in the essay was that the 40 years since the bombing of Hiroshima had done more to change collective human consciousness about our inextricable connection to one another and our oneness than 4,000 years of religious preachment. Ooh. That the nightmare 
of nuclear technology made it inescapably clear to anybody who was paying any attention that we are one folk. You yeah. can't get away from it. As Tom Lair says in his sardonic song, we'll all go together when we go. That's right. That's right. Every hot and tot and every Eskimo. And it doesn't matter whether you go off survivalist fashion into the woods. Our situation is a collective situation. We are our brothers and sisters keepers. Mm -hmm. And world religions have been preaching this for at least 4,000 years to some effect, but not much. And 40 years of nuclear horror anchored that idea in collective awareness That's right. in a fashion that for nightmares have a tendency to do that. Yes, they certainly do. They have a, ten- a way of focusing our attention on the truth that gentler approaches tend to miss. Yes. Well, Jeremy Taylor, I would love to talk to you for another hour, but I know... Well, we should do this again. Well, let's do this in maybe in January or something. Sounds good to me. <laughs> okay. I would, I, yeah, you, you know that talking to you is one of the things I love to do. Oh, so. well, you're too kind. And Jeremy, really, I feel like you should get some sort of Lifetime Achievement Award for being down in the trenches of the dream world for so long and with such a generosity of spirit. Well, so. thank you. From your lips to the collective ear. (laughs) We have been talking with Jeremy Taylor here on Dream Talk Radio. You can find out about Jeremy's teaching and traveling and different musings on dream issues at jeremytaylor.com. You can pick up a copy of his brilliant uh, comic book treatment of dreams on blurb.com, and that is called... What was that all about? What was that all about? And his latest book, which is actually a re a revision of an earlier book, is called The Wisdom of Your Dreams, and it, it should be available everywhere. Great books on dreams. Yeah, it's actually sold. more of an expansion than a revision. An expansion. Okay. Yeah, yeah one of the things right. that I was very pleased by was reading through it and realizing, well, I actually got that right. Excellent. That doesn't need to be changed. It just needs to be fluffed up a little more. <laughs> well, Jeremy, thank you so much for spending time with well, us this morning. Well, thank you for having me on your wonderful it's show. It's been a real pleasure. And uh, a podcast of this will be up shortly so people can hear it who weren't able to tune in this morning. Okay, well, have have wonderful holidays, and yes. I'll talk to you in the new you year. You too. Sounds great. All right. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Jeremy Taylor, Reverend Jeremy Taylor, Dr. Jeremy Taylor, um, really pioneer of the grassroots dream work movement and community organizer par excellence. You have been listening to Dream Talk Radio here on Christmas Eve Day on KOWS LP Occidental. I'm Ann Hill. I am your host every week on Dream Talk Radio. You can find out about all of my different things and hear podcasts from the show at annhill.org, A-N-N-E-H-I-L-L dot org. And uh, Dream Talk Radio is also available on iTunes. If you go to the iTunes store and uh, and type in Dream Talk Radio, you'll get all sorts of podcasts from this show. So have a great holiday, everyone, and I will see you again in the new year.
That ends this week's Dream Talk radio show podcast. Thanks for listening, and remember to tune in every Thursday from 9 to 10 a.m. at www.kows.fm. This is Ann Hill, and I'll see you again next week.